It's good to be back. Um, it's been a great privilege getting to know your pastor, Rick. We've got coffee probably four or five times now. It's been been great. Uh, since I've last been here, it's um, been interesting, to say the least. There's been a lot of things going on at Providence, and um, as your pastor tells me, there's been a lot of things going on here as well, so it's just exciting, trusting that he's having a good missions trip um, in Kyrgyzstan. Can't say that I exactly called him before coming, because it's kind of hard to do <laughs> when he's in Kyrgyzstan, but um, I'm believing. Today, we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, there's something today that I am refusing to do that I think you may have heard done many times, and that is when somebody unpreaches their sermon immediately after preaching it. And it's something like this. He preaches on the good news of the gospel, and then immediately following his talking on the good news of the gospel, before the service ends, the pastor goes back into teaching, and he says, now do not take this as a pass to go into sinful living, okay? Or, better yet, the, the pastor's preaching a sermon of reproof on self-control, and he's talking about the biblical principles of self-control, and then right before ending the service, he says, no, wait, wait, don't be too self-controlled with your money, pay tithes. Don't forget that. And you unpreach all of the either good news or the reproof that you've just spent the last 40 minutes talking about. Today, the goal is actually to do the opposite of that, and that is to like nail this to your soul forever, because all 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is, is simply good news. And what we're going to walk through today is answering really one question that thousands and hundreds of thousands of people ask, and that is this question. Paul calls the Old Covenant, the law, the ministry of death, and he calls it glorious. And so the question we're going to be answering today is, how in the world is a ministry of death glorious? And then on top of that, how is this new covenant ministry even better than that one? So that's what we're going to seek to answer today. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're just going to read the whole chapter, 18 verses. It, it won't make as much sense unless we do that. So, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendations to you, or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and be read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of letter, but of the Spirit. Watch this. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. These next four verses are going to be the heart of everything we talk about today. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once has glory, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. 
Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we can come together and dig into your word as a a family in you. God, I pray that you would operate despite my weakness Despite my weakness physically, mentally, and spiritually, I pray that you would fill in all of the gaps and that your gospel would be proclaimed and that hearts would be changed and souls would be convicted and that the body would be encouraged. Father, we pray all of these things in your holy name. Amen. Obviously, starting in 2 Corinthians 3, the beginning of the chapter sounds as if he's continuing a thought from somewhere else, and he is. Because he starts this way, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendations to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and be about. It was a very common practice in Paul's ministry for all of his opposition to attack his authority as an apostle. The traditional criteria for being an apostle was to be the eyewitness of Christ. Now, obviously Paul was not one of the twelve disciples, So what do we do? Paul's claim in his authority and apostleship is that he received the gospel directly from Christ on the road to Damascus. Then, when Paul's in the temple in Damascus, Ananias gets a vision from God saying, hey, go see Paul. And that was Paul's affirmation. He goes into Arabia. He comes back to Jerusalem, spends 14 days with Peter. It's this whole process of Paul's apostleship being vetted. Then in Acts chapter 15, before the Jerusalem council, All of the Jerusalem council collectively votes to endorse Paul and Barnabas in their ministry to the Gentiles. And it was a big deal. Even still, after all that is done, time and time again, people would attack Paul on the grounds that he is not legitimately an apostle. And so often he has to defend his apostleship. What he's saying here in in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is that the actual church of Corinth, the fact that there's a body of believers gathering once a week, to talk about the things of God, is proof that Paul was an apostle. He's saying the fact that you exist as a church is proof of my apostleship. It's not written in letters. It's written in, like, tablet of spirit because you all collectively are a body. If this was faked, you wouldn't be gathering together. And that sets up this transition to, really, the first six verses. These first six verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 are in the theme of, of Paul's apostleship, but in these first six verses, we actually have some of the most important groundbreaking theology in all of the New Testament, going all the way back to the book of Ezekiel, and we'll talk about that today. And then in verses 7 through 11, if you were a Jew that had not yet accepted Christ, some of the most offensive theology in all of the New Testament, and then in verses 12 through 18, if you are a Christian, some of the most comforting and exciting and good news theology in all of the New Testament. 
all neatly packaged up here in one chapter. So let's go through this. Verses 3 through 5 are where we start to see really what I would consider to be huge, big deal, life-changing, faith-altering theology, and that is this. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul's talking here about two covenants, one that is old, one that is new. I want you to think about the old covenant in this way. The old covenant was the law that was written on stone. Think of this as the ministry of Moses. This is what we're going to call the letter of the law. Now he's contrasting that with what he's calling the new covenant. The new covenant is not written on stone. Actually, rather, it is written on our hearts. And we're going to think of this as the spirit of the law. And as you can read here, Paul uses the language of letter and spirit. This is the contrast. This is what he's working between. The problem, though, for us, coming in 2,000 years later, is that there's disagreement amongst different theologians as to what Paul actually means when he says letter. And this is why that is significant. The typical definition of when we're talking about the letter of the law is to say the letter of the law is the written law of God from the Old Testament, and the purpose it served was to show all of us that we can't follow the law, and that we were all terrible, and that it made life really hard, and the spirit of the law, the new covenant has come in, and we don't have to worry about the old letter of the law anymore. Now that's not technically wrong, but the objection is this. That is a wrong way of thinking, because it dismisses the Old Testament as just being this bad, ugly thing that is no longer a thing that we deal with anymore, and it's been replaced by this new, warm, fuzzy thing that is accepting to everybody. And so law, bad. New Testament, good. Well, if that was the correct way of thinking, I don't think that Jesus would have said, I have come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. If the law was just some bad thing that we were waiting to be lifted off of us, then Jesus would not have come to it, or fulfill it. He would have came to either set it aside or to abolish it completely, maybe even to erase it. So there is things that are good about the law, and Paul goes as far to call it glorious. Now, I am not going to walk back the statement that the purpose of the law was to show everybody that you can't keep it. The truth is that somehow the ministry of death that proved everybody is unworthy, was glorious. The mission of the law is to prove to everyone that you can't do it was glorious. And the question that this sermon is aiming to answer is how? How is it glorious for humankind to be indicted on the fact that we can't ever achieve perfection? The second question is how is this new covenant so much better than the old one? I think where we need to start in answering this is we need to use what Paul says in the rest of the Bible to form what we think Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when he talks about letter and spirit. And if we can piece together biblically what Paul is talking about here, I think it will take all of the legwork out from us trying to have to guess what he means, because he'll tell us. 
I think, from the rest of the New Testament, the point that Paul is trying to make here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is this. That the law in the Old Testament went from being unfollowable to followable because of the work of Christ. And if you want reinforcement as to Paul's views on the law has gone from unfollowable to followable, um, read Galatians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 2 through Romans chapter 4. And you're met with this beautiful like, work on justification by faith. And essentially, it's this long, beautiful teaching from Paul saying that all of the things in the law that we could never fulfill, Christ fulfilled for us. And that the way that you access that and the way that you are finally able to fulfill the law is not you fulfilling the law at all. Rather, it is Christ's following of the law being credited to you by you having faith in him. And so I think what we need to focus on here is Paul talking about, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the law has gone from unfollowable to followable because of the work of Christ. And because of faith, we have access to what Christ has done for us. So put that in your mind before we go any deeper. Paul calls the ministry of the law the ministry of death. The ministry of Moses is the ministry of death. How is that glorious? Start here in verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God. Watch this. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What if I told you that this small line of, let's say eight words, I'm not going to count it. What if I told you that the small line here of, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, was such a big deal that Ezekiel actually prophesied in two chapters that this would be happening. What if I actually went as far to say that all of our understanding of New Testament theology and what Jesus came to do is actually really, in a way, rooted in what Ezekiel is talking about here? What I mean is, in Ezekiel chapter 11, in Ezekiel chapter 36, he gives us a prophecy saying, talking about from God to the church, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Who's ever heard that passage before? popular. Now if you go to Ezekiel chapter 36, there's a few extra words that are added on to that statement that make this so significant. Watch this. He says, and I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And then he says this, and I will put my spirit within you, comma, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what makes Christianity fundamentally different, not just from Judaism, but from every single other religion ever. And this is why. Because this is what the prophecy is teaching. God comes in and he says, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. If you didn't have the rest of what Ezekiel was saying, it would probably sound something like this to us. Okay, so God's going to come in and he's going to take my heart of stone and he's going to give me a heart of flesh. And because he's given me a heart of flesh, then I'll finally be able to be the Christian that God has called me to be. Wrong. It's not just that God takes this sinful heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, and now you're fit to like shepherd the multitudes. What actually has to take place 
in order for any of us to make it to heaven and to continue in the faith, is that after the heart of stone is removed and the heart of flesh is put in, the Spirit of God comes into this heart of flesh and He causes us to not only be able to walk in the statutes that He's commanded us to do, but to be careful to obey His rules. Meaning that the mindfulness to actually care about what God has called us to do is not natural to the human heart. Your desire to please God and to glorify God is not natural. And God has to come in and do a work in you first before you're able to please Him. All of the teachings of Islam, Hinduism, Buddha, Jainism, Taoism, it is this. If you do enough good things and you try hard enough and you climb the mountain, one day you're either going to reach nirvana and be alleviated from all of this or you're going to receive an eternal reward from the heavenlies because you were good. A plus, good job, you pass. The gospel says that before you can ever even desire to climb the mountain, God has to first come to you, give you a heart of flesh in place of your heart of stone and implant in that heart of flesh his spirit. And then, and only then, after you have received the Holy Spirit, do you have the ability and the desire to do what God has called us to do. That is why Paul is calling this the ministry of the Spirit. This is why he uses the language of saying the law is written on your hearts. Why is the law written on your heart? Because the Spirit has been put into you, and the Spirit is now in a real primitive way of thinking about it, like a super-powered conscience that causes you to long after the things of God and to grieve whenever you know that because of your sin you are failing to do those things. The ministry of the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ at work in you so that you not only can do what God has called you to, but so that you can desire what God has called you to. So think about it like this. This is what the Old Covenant is. Your boss tells you to clean your office because the CEO is coming by. And so your boss says, clean your office, here's your to-do list. Boom, vacuum, take out your trash, scrub your office chair with a toothbrush, wipe your desk down with pledge. And you take the list, and you do all of it, except for the toothbrush part. And you say, well, dadgummit, the CEO's here, my chair's dirty. The new covenant is like this. Your boss tells you the CEO is coming into town, and so you say, oh man, you know what? I better go clean my office. And so you vacuum, you clean your chair with a toothbrush, you take your trash out, you wipe down your desk with pledge. Not only do you desire to have a clean office because the CEO is coming, you clean your office with a smile on your face without having to be told. Because when you were told the CEO was coming, something in you said, hey, you know what? I probably need to clean my office. And you smiled while doing it. That's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, God says, do these things and don't do these things. The New Covenant, the heart that is within you desires to do them, and because of the work of the Spirit, you actually can. Do you see the difference? This sets up perfectly verses 4 and 5. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Here's why that matters. If you fail what God has told you to do, take this back to Adam and Eve in the garden. God says, you've got one job. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And then you do that. How does it make any sense to say that after immediately disobeying the one command that God gave you, to be able to say, I have enough confidence with God, regardless of the fact that I've like really did the one thing he told me not to do, I'm confident enough to be able to say, I'm going to have a good relationship with him, and that after I die, even though I've totally jacked this up, he's going to build me a mansion in the heavenlies and we'll live happily ever after. That makes no sense. To think that, human, that humanity could be confident in our relationship with God after the fall makes no sense because once sin entered the world, this beautiful relationship we once had with God was fractured big time. And now Paul comes in talking about the ministry of the Spirit, and he says because of the Spirit of God that is in you, you are now able again to be reconciled to God because of the work of the cross and you're able to walk in fellowship with him, and you're actually able to sort of understand not just the law, but how to live this out. And he says, we have confidence through Christ towards God. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, I am confident that I'm going to be able to enter back into relationship with God one day. Then this next line, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Meaning that I am confident that I'm going to be able to be restored to that Garden of Eden-like relationship with God, not because of my own works, because of the work of Christ. And because of the work of Christ, because of what he has done on my behalf, it wasn't just he made me right. Now living within me is the Spirit. Philippians chapter 2 says it like this, to will and to work to God's good pleasure. When the Spirit comes in us to live and reside, just like Ezekiel says, in chapter 36, it's not just that we have the desire to please God, it's we have the ability to will and to work. So because of the Spirit in us, we have the willing and the working. So let me ask you this question. If it is God in us that is willing and is working, where in this equation do I get to take any credit? Nowhere. So because of the ministry of the Spirit at work in us, doing what we could never do, when we get to the end of the road and we're finally in heaven, and we see this beautiful journey that we were able to walk in harmony with Christ because of the gospel, nowhere in any of the story do I get to sign my name and say, that was me, I did it. And the beauty of the gospel is that I don't have to. And this is what Paul is talking about when he's talking about letter and spirit. Now we pick up in verse 6, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We all know the difference between the letter of the law and the Spirit of the law. Something like this. You see on CNN, you know, some billionaire releases his tax records, and you realize that he's paid less in taxes than you pay, making 40 grand a year. How does that work? Because somehow, through the legality of tax codes, He's able to know that if I buy a Chevy Tahoe, it exceeds the weight limit and the size dimensions. I can completely write this as a tax write-off, and it's a free car that I don't have to pay taxes on. And he knows that I can essentially wash my money if I utilize the property tax system the right way, and if I hold this house for two years, I don't have to pay capital gains. And what he does is legal. But all of us kind of get rubbed the wrong way when we see the fact that this dude with $10 million didn't pay 15 cents worth of taxes when I did. And I make a fraction of what he makes. It's legal, but it's not right. And I think anybody would be willing to say 
that if I have to pay taxes on my 40 grand, this dude that makes $10 million should at least have to pay a couple hundred bucks. Is that fair? The reason that it's fair is because even though he's operating within the confines of the letter of the law, all of us intuitively know he is avoiding the spirit of the law. The letter of the law may prohibit using firearms on someone else, but the spirit of the law is what says you're innocent when you use the firearm on somebody that's trying to harm your family. You tracking with me? The inverse of letter and spirit looks something like this. If the abuse of the spirit of the law following the letter of the law is the billionaire using tax codes to avoid paying taxes, this is the inverse of using the spirit of the law and not minding the letter of the law as much. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And he's confronted on the Sabbath by Pharisees. And they say, hey, it's not right for you to heal a man on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, which of you, if your donkey fell into a pit on the Sabbath, would not get into the pit and get the donkey out? And they're all left speechless. Why? Because the spirit of the law never was about that. The spirit of the law was Jesus knowing, obviously, because he is God, that the spirit of the law is about Sabbath rest. And that the Pharisees had added letter to the law, and they were so focused on the letter that when Jesus was operating within the spirit of the law, they tried to accuse him of breaking the letter of the law. Verses 7 through 11 teach us this, talking about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? So if the old covenant is the letter of the law, what about the letter of the law is sort of intimidating? The letter of the law is ruthless when the spirit of the law is probably going to be more compassionate. The letter of the law has no sympathy whatsoever. It is purely black and white on paper. If you break this, you are guilty. So the question still stands. Paul never backs off from calling the old covenant the letter of the law. In fact, he doubles down on it. The question still stands. How is the old covenant glorious if through the letter of the law was brutal condemnation that indicted millions of people. Before answering that question, I want to draw our attention to something else. When is the big list of 613 Levitical laws given to Moses? Answer, the book of Leviticus. What did God tell Adam and Eve would happen to them if they violated his commandment to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You shall surely die. When did God tell Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die? Genesis chapter 3. You want to know how much space there is between Genesis chapter 3 and mankind being told, you shall surely die? And how much space there is between that and God giving the list of 613 commands? 87 chapters. I counted it. 87 chapters. Now in Genesis 3, he says, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. They eat of the tree. But what happens? 
not only do they seemingly not die, when they're exiting the garden, God sees their designer fig leaf outfit, and he says, that's terrible. And he clothes them on their way out. And so instead of them just dying immediately, he clothes them, and then he takes 87 chapters worth of patience to develop the story far enough to give them the Levitical law. Explain to me why God owed it to us to be that patient and that kind when he said, if you do this, you shall die. Did they die? Eventually. Eventually. But you've got 87 chapters of undeserved patience before getting to the Levitical law. So the question must be asked, what's so significant about this Levitical law if it took God 87 chapters to make it? And then we turn around and we accuse this God that did all of this in his divine patience and kindness. We accuse him when we get to the New Testament. We look back and we read the Old Testament and we say he's just this big bad bully on a power trip who just had to think of 613 random things to give to the Israelites because he couldn't be satisfied with them just simply existing. Just a thought. It seems like that from Genesis 3 to Leviticus chapter 1, God showed mankind a mind-blowing amount of patience and kindness, conditioning them to be able to receive the law. And if he spent all of that time and effort to condition them to receive the law, what's so special about this law? Well, in answering this question, I think we can also start to say, why is the law so glorious? Here's why. I'm going to give you three reasons as to why the old covenant law was glorious. Now, you could spend a lifetime filling up encyclopedias as to why the Old Testament law was glorious, but I'm going to give you three reasons that I think most relate to the flow that Paul takes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you were to go home and read 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, I think these three reasons are going to stand out as to why, thought, or why Paul thought it was um, worth it to talk about the Old Testament law. So the Old Covenant was glorious. Why? The Old Covenant was glorious... Because it was given as a response to humanity's sin. Built in to this response to humanity's sin was the demand for perfection. Here's laws. Follow them. Don't break them. Now God knew, because he's God, that we were never going to be able to keep all of these laws and to follow them for all of our lives without breaking them. Actually, in fact, you'd probably be hard-pressed to go 24 hours without breaking at least a dozen of them. God knew that. So what did he do? It would have been just for God to give us these laws and say, if you can follow these perfectly, I'll allow you to get back to the status you had into the law. That would be justice. Justice is repaying the act with what it is due. What was gracious, though, was in God giving us the Old Testament law, building in an entire ministry of sacrifice so that animals could die on behalf of us not being able to keep the law. So God's response to us failing was to give us a law and include within the law a safety net in case we failed again and again and again and again and again and again. So it was a pathway for us to atone for our sins, even though we could never keep the law. There was built-in guidelines for animal sacrifice. That's reason one why it's glorious, because God cared about humanity so much that rather than just killing us, 
And I would argue that the thing that would be worse than just killing us would be to let us exist and to take his sovereign hand of care and compassion off of us. When I think about humanity, and I think about the Holocaust, and I think about the Crusades, and I think about 9-11, and I think about all of the terrible things we've been able to do, can you imagine if God would have just let us be? If God would have simply removed his hands and allowed humanity to walk on in all of their error, what kind of quality of life would we have if mankind was left to be as evil as he wants to be? God didn't do that. He gave us the law. He gave us a pathway to atone for our sins. And he kept his sovereign hand of care on all of us for all of the rest of humanity. God cared enough about us to not only give us the law, but to graciously give us a means to be restored to perfection through the law. Reason two, why the law is so glorious. It not only illuminated, but it made undeniable our hopeless and sinful condition and our inability to keep the law. Because of the law, don't eat shellfish. Don't wear mixed lemons. Don't steal. All these other things. Because of the law, our failure to try to keep it nailed into our soul the fact that we can't do it. I fail in the new covenant as a Christian under grace because of Christ. I fail. And it made undeniable to all of mankind our hopeless, sinful condition. We can't keep it. Which sets up the third reason, the main reason why the law was glorious. It was the pathway for the coming Messiah. And it gave us a context to be able to understand what the Messiah was going to do when he came. What I mean is this, the Jews were so distracted and, and so worried about the Messiah being this political Messiah that would deliver them out of the hands of the Romans. When he comes as the ultimate spotless lamb, they for hundreds of thousands, well, thousands of years, hundreds of years, had been acquainted to the Levitical process of this lamb has to die in order for my sin to be put on him. They were familiar with the process of the scapegoat being kicked out of the village for the sins of the people. But yet somehow, when Jesus came, they still missed that he was going to be the spotless lamb for everybody. They wanted him to make Israel great again. And that's not what he did. He said, the Son of Man came not to, serve, came not to be served, but to serve. And that did not make sense in their rational mind. All of these thousands of years, we've been waiting for a Messiah. And you mean to tell me you came so that these Romans could kill you? Actually, you killed them, Jews. All of these thousands of years of walking in the fact that I can't do it. I can't keep it. And Jesus finally comes and he has no interest in alleviating us from this oppressive rule of the Romans. He has interest in purchasing our souls through the blood that was shed by the cross that he bore. And because of the years of the Old Testament law, when we look back and we read the Old Testament, you see every adjective, verb, and grammatical Marking, comma, exclamation point, apostrophe, all of it is to lead us and point us to Christ. He is the main character. And Paul argues later in this chapter that when you believe in Christ, the veil is lifted from your eyes and you're able to read the Old Testament and you see that. That when it points us to all of the process of being cleansed by animal sacrifice, it was for Christ. 
The whole reason that God took his time to develop the Old Testament is so that when Jesus came, it would make sense for him to say, Behold, the Lamb has come that taketh away the sins of the world. If God would have met Adam and Eve outside of the garden in Genesis 4, and said, I am supplying to you the spotless lamb that through substitutionary atonement will supply for you a pathway that all can be made righteous by faith alone. They would say, what the heck does any of that mean? And actually, we still somewhat think, what the heck does any of that mean? But God would have been in every right to simply do that and to dump his method of restoration upon humanity and just say, well, it's not my fault that you can't understand it. But rather than doing that, he took the entire Old Testament and built context after context, story after story, illustration after illustration. This is how atonement will come. Only the houses that have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost will be exempt from the angel of death. Story after story, time after time, so that when Jesus came, people would say, I can't follow the law and oh my goodness, one has finally come that can. And through his work, I can finally be alleviated from this curse of my own sinfulness. That's the good news. It didn't make any sense without the Old Testament illuminating that pathway for us. Those are the three main reasons, I think, in accordance to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, hey, the Old Covenant is glorious because the New Covenant is the most glorious thing to ever exist, and the Old Covenant was the path that God used to get us there. Our condition as sinful and unable to even crawl in the presence of a holy God would have been the same, whether or not God would have ever given us the law. If God would have withheld the law, it would change nothing about the fact that because of sin, I am permanently separated from him. But because God was patient and kind enough to give us the law to create a pathway for the spotless lamb that would once and for all bring us back into communion with him, I don't have to die knowing that for as long as humanity has been around, myself included, I looked at God and spat in his face over and over again and said, I want me more than you. I don't have to live with that because even though I did, Jesus took it all. And it's glorious to think that all of this sin that I've committed is not my problem anymore. It's glorious. But the law in itself is not good news. Why? Because we can't keep it. It was designed that way. So why is the new covenant so much more glorious than the old one? Why is the new covenant good news? Every single problem that humanity has with the law can be boiled down to this one statement. We can't keep it. Now when you read Romans chapter 3, and it says we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, is that good news? Or you fast forward to 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is that good news? And if you don't think so, let me try to make the case that that's, well, the best news of all time. Because what happened on the cross was the perfect version of what was happening over and over and over again in the Old Testament. This is what was happening. This is what the law put into our minds. Man sees the holiness of God. 
Man tries to follow the law of God. Man fails. So an animal is sacrificed. Through that sacrifice, the sins of the man can be put on the animal. But guess what? After that animal dies, man fails again. And so another animal dies. And after that animal dies, give it a day, man fails again. And so because of the failures of men, animal after animal is having to be sacrificed, bloodshed after bloodshed for all of eternity. If Christ never comes, that's our reality. This is the gospel. Jesus on the cross took all the sin for all that would believe in him, all of the wrath of God that I deserve and that you deserve for the sins that we have committed were put on Christ. And in exchange... The 33 years of perfection that Jesus lived after generations of men that failed and failed and failed after tens of thousands of animals were slaughtered for the failures of men. The 33 years of sinless perfection that Jesus lived is put on us in the same moment that our sin is put on him. He's on the cross. He's hanging and he's dying. And here comes Dalton with 22 years of sins and failures and shortcomings. And all it takes is faith in Christ as Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And in one moment, every sin is taken off me and put on him. And every ounce of his perfection is taken off him and put on me. And so in that moment when God saw what should have been me, he saw Christ. And for the rest of eternity, when God sees what should be me, he sees Christ. His perfection is my perfection. My sin became his sin because of the work on the cross. And it was the perfect fulfillment of everything that had been happening in the Old Testament. So why was the Old Covenant glorious? Because it was what was put in place to lead us to not only be a part of, but to understand this glorious gospel. And at the same time, though, the Old Covenant had to come to an end. Because the new covenant had to come in, and as the old covenant was designed to be temporary, this new covenant is everlasting. Glory to the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Though the law proves us guilty, it was the only pathway for the eventual coming of the perfect spotless Lamb. That's why the old covenant is glorious. Why is this new covenant glorious? No more animal sacrifices. No more laboring endlessly over the fact that no matter how hard I try, I can't. Because where I can't, Christ has already. Because Christ already did, and because we can be recipients of his free grace through faith, the new covenant is glorious. Salvation to all men for all kind through faith, and eternal inheritance through Christ to all men, our sufficiency, our hope, our righteousness. That's all it takes. No more animal sacrifice. No more being told you can't eat shellfish. No more being told you can't wear mixed linens. No more of all of these laws, 613 of them, it's all been fulfilled through Christ. And because of Christ's freedom, I am free. Now verses 12 through 18, this glorious part of the Bible. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, 
the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. What Paul's talking about here, verse 12, is Moses had a literal shining of glory on his face because of his encounter with the glory of God. Now, this is a foreshadowing of the fact that the covenant of Moses was designed to be temporary. Why? Because after time, the glory that was on the face of Moses began to fade. I think about it like this. God meets Moses and he gives him the law. And it's this wonderful moment of humanity seeing God cares about us. God hears us. He's given us this law. Only for us to realize we can't keep it. The glory starts and then in time the glory fades because we're left with the reality that we're all terrible at keeping the law. And so what Moses did, according to Paul, is he would put a veil over his face so that Israel would not see the fading of the glory of God upon Moses' being. And Paul says, and we all with unveiled face. It's just such a powerful line because when you really think about it, Moses is this great patriarch of the Old Testament that parted the Red Sea, threw his rod down, it turns into a snake, eats the Pharaoh's snake. The glory that is in us because of Christ outshines the glory that was on arguably the greatest Israelite character in the Old Testament. Because the work of Christ, to the least of these, supersedes the work of everything that has ever existed. Verse 16, it's, got to figure out what not to say here, we've already said too much. (laughs) But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the spirit of the, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree or another. Right there in verse 15, preceding that, or even verse 14, Paul is talking about the status of the Jews in that time. He's saying, hey, man, without Christ, when they read the Old Testament, they still don't see this for what it is. They read the Old Testament, and they think that they have to die following all these laws. He's saying, but you guys that are in the Spirit of Christ, you're free from that. And when you read the Old Covenant, you see Christ and all of his glory for who he is and what he has come to do. And that's why you have this passage about where the Spirit of the Lord is. There is freedom. We are free. This is the part of the sermon. When I'm talking about we, we can't unpreach this to try to avoid loose living. It's just simply the good news. There once was a time when mankind was bound by his failures to the letter of the law. And now, through the Spirit of Christ, because of the work in me, my heart of stone is not in my body anymore. It's been replaced with the heart of flesh, and the desires of God are placed in me because of Christ. I'm free. All of my sin for the rest of my life by faith in Christ is gone. And here's the good news. It's not just for me. We, I, I saw an interview the other day between a guy named Dennis Prager, and he was, he was doing an interview with a, with a Catholic guy. Dennis Prager's a Jew, and he has a very popular conservative network called PragerU. And to hear Dennis Prager articulate his understanding of the Old Testament without Christ just showed me that conservatism without Christ is nonsense the way that he says liberalism is nonsense. Nothing makes sense in reality unless the veil of sin is lifted off your face and you see Christ. 
The Old Testament didn't make sense to the Jews without Christ. 2023 doesn't make sense to Americans without Christ. And this is the reality. We are free if the world burns tomorrow. I get to see my Jesus as soon as the flames take me. There is no bad news anymore. I heard Tim Keller say he just passed away from cancer. He was talking in an interview after receiving his cancer diagnosis. He's talking to about a conversation him and his wife had. He says, you know what, Kathy, if Jesus really did raise from the dead, it's all going to be okay. He died of cancer. Do you think that his reasoning changed at all? That as he's on his deathbed, as he's about to meet Jesus, do you think he said, well, now that I think I am actually about to die, maybe it's not going to be okay? Of course not. Because we're free. And it's not just freedom that I get to go to the local convenience store and buy a Bud Light. That's where our mind goes. I'm talking about freedom from the law that says I should be crushed under the fist of the wrath of God for the sins I have committed. That's what I'm free from. And I get to walk in joy and fulfillment for the rest of my life because of the work of Christ. Verse 17 and 18. Again, and we all with unfilled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Now, the only thing that I can add here is that this would be where works comes into play. And here's my argument. If you are a true believer in Christ and your heart of stone has been removed for a heart of flesh and the desires of the Lord have been implanted in you, that demands that you walk as the Bible calls us to walk. It demands it. If the fruit of the Spirit are not active in our lives in any amount, and there is no progressive growth of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, I think the biblical argument from the book of James is you've never been saved. There is no context for a lukewarm Christian. The lukewarm Christian is spewed out. We are being transformed into the same image. Now, from one degree or another, not everybody is going to be at the same level that Billy Graham was at when he was 50 when you turn 50 <laughs> this, there's degrees but I think the argument is made that if there is no passion for the things of Christ in you if there is no restraint from the things of this world in you, if there is no desire for the things of Christ in you at all then I don't think you can make the case that you've truly been redeemed because absolutely following your redemption is going to be the removal of the heart of stone, the implanting heart of the flesh. Guess what? Now also the desires of Christ and the things of Christ are in you, and it will break your heart when you fall short. But because of the language that is used here, being transformed one degree to another, do you think that God knows that his children are going to sin even after they're saved? Of course he does. Do you think his grace is good enough to cover you when you sin, even after you're saved? Of course it is. So what does that mean? I strive. Even though I can't, I strive. And every success that I ever have is the Holy Spirit in me. And every failure that I ever experience is completely my own doing. And so when I get to the end of this road, it's not that I didn't try or I should have tried harder. It's that however this lands, I was being transformed. God gets the glory. I take all the blame. I wash my hands and I lay my head on my pillow at night saying I am guiltless from everything in the past because of the work of Christ. Now as we're about to close, how does this apply to my life? <laughs> it's a lot of good Old Testament stuff. How does this actually apply to my life? The first step is if you're not a believer, I implore you to please lay your life down at the foot of the cross and have faith in Christ. 
if you have not experienced this free gift of grace that is just the best thing that ever happened to humanity, I implore you to experience it. The second thing, where this applies to my life is, if you are a Christian, you should feel in your heart the desire to follow the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. What does that mean? It means if I'm in a public restroom and I just haphazardly throw a big bundle of paper towels by the trash can, am I bothered by the fact that would Jesus do that or would he like kick up after himself? Well, there's no law in the New Testament that says I have to maintain public restrooms. Think about it like this. I love this analogy because it's just, it's just so silly. If you think about Jesus in a public restroom, Jesus in a restaurant, the way that he treats the waitress, Jesus on public transportation, how does Jesus act and how do I act? Does Jesus tip? Does Jesus pick up his trash? Does Jesus let the person in front of him get the seat and he stand up on the bus and, and take the rail? Does Jesus hold the door for people behind him? Of course he does. Well, there's no law in the Bible that says I have to do those things. Of course there isn't. But the Holy Spirit in you is going to prompt you to do things that the law never would. The law condemns in letter, sure, but the Spirit challenges. Meaning that because of the Spirit of Christ, I am obligated to be convicted when I don't talk to my co-workers the way that Christ would talk to his co-workers. I am convicted when I don't talk to my spouse the way that Christ would have me to talk to my spouse. I am convicted when I react in traffic to the way that Christ would not react in traffic. These things are not laws, but the Spirit in us is calling us up higher, transforming us from one degree to the other. We will see growth and the small things in our lives when we think about how would Christ handle this same exact situation. It's challenging. The last way that this applies to our life is this. I want to encourage you to genuinely sit in the fact that you're free. And I want you to allow the work of Christ to be as a refreshing deep breath that whenever things are tough or whenever you feel like you've sinned or whenever things fall short, preach the gospel to yourself. Because if you're reminded of the work of Christ for you, it's going to change the way that we affect others. And so, I'm going to pray us out today. And I hope that the gospel will challenge us and prod us as we move forward. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we're able to come into your house. Father, I thank you for all that you've done in our hearts and all, all that you've done in our lives. God, I thank you for the glory of the old covenant and all that you've done in us. Father, I thank you for the glory of this new covenant. I thank you for the work of Christ. God, I pray that everyone that is here hearing this preaching, Father God, that they would be moved to come into this beautiful kingdom of you and to your wonderful family through the gospel of Christ if they have not believed. And God, those of us that are believers, I pray that in our lives this week you would challenge us and you would prompt us to love others the way that we never have before because of the love that you have shown us. I pray that we would sit and rest in the freedom and the grace that you have given us. I pray that you would be in us, working through us and beside us in all that we do, God, and that you would just be before us changing our hearts from one degree of glory to the other every day for the rest of our lives. Thank you again for this opportunity. In your name we pray. Amen.